0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Daniel chapter 5. It's where we are this morning. We've been working our way through this Old Testament incredible story of Daniel And as always, if you don't have a Bible, I I would love for you to use one of the ones in the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible as your own. It's our gift to you. Keep it, read it, come back, open up God's Word, follow along for yourself. We're going to work through a, a large chapter. So if you're not used to looking up pages or passages in the Bible, you can find Daniel 5 on page 580 or 742 of the same versions but different copies of the Bible that you may have in front of you. As you're finding that, let me just remind you, Springer alluded to it earlier, but this Wednesday we have just a great joy of, of hosting Gareth Franks, who is a South African missionary church planter. And he and his wife and children have been in India for the past 14 years. They've planted two churches, and now they're in Nasik Baptist Church. This is the pastor of the church that our team is going to work with, he is actually here in the United States. He's flying into Atlanta tomorrow night. We're going to pick him up. He's going to be with us all week. And then he is going to be flying with our team back to his home in Nasik, India. But Wednesday night, we're going to have dinner with Gareth here. Everybody's invited. I know it's the end of the school year and the beginning of summer and all of that. This is a difficult time, but this is just kind of when it worked out for him to be here. If you are available, we would love for you to come and meet gareth we're going to eat at six so please rsvp so we know how much food to provide five bucks a person no more than twenty dollars per family and then after we eat out in the foyer we'll gather in here and uh just hear from gareth share about the work of god in india where like many countries one of the number one pros- one, of, one of the number one exports of america regrettably is the false prosperity gospel where uh just People are sold a bill of goods, just health and wealth, and a faulty view of what it means to be a Christian for the sake of just these charlatan preachers who just want numbers and money. Well, Gareth and uh, his church are, are really doing the opposite of that. They are ministering truth and the power of the gospel in a difficult, difficult place. It is a land absorbed with idols and a false religion, much like America. So please do come if you're able and, and uh, meet Gareth. It will be really an encouraging time for us, Lord willing. Well, if you're visiting with us today, we're right smack dab down in the middle of an Old Testament book, which is one of the more difficult books in the Bible, really, to, to read and think about. But hopefully, what we have been doing these past few weeks has been helpful. We're going to finish out in the coming weeks as we work all the way through Daniel chapter 12. This morning, we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 5 in this incredible scene where this king Nebuchadnezzar that we have been reading about up to this point in the first four chapters is now dead and gone and off the scene. And a new king, who is probably his grandson, Belshazzar, is now the king of Babylon. And God's people, Israel, are in captivity in Babylon because of their rebellion and disobedience against God. So if you're newer, we're going to catch you up to the context as we read through this chapter. But just know this, that the point of the book of Daniel and the point that we in particular are working through Daniel is because the question that looms throughout the book of Daniel is how will God's people live in a foreign land that is hostile to God? God's people are in captivity, away from their land, under Babylonian rule, being suppressed by these evil, this evil empire. And the question is, in fact, it's in the Psalms, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? In other words, how shall we live for God when the world around us hates God? That was the question for God's people thousands of years ago in Babylon. And it is the question for God's people today, isn't it? I mean, we don't have to do much work to just realize that we live in a foreign land. So how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Okay, so before I read, let me just give you a summary, just orient you to Daniel chapter 5. Here's what's happening, is that there's a new young king on the throne, Belshazzar, and he is, well, he is arrogant. Let's just put it that way, and we'll read about that in just a moment. And he throws a big banquet where he is really just uh, just blaspheming God in this banquet, and even as he's throwing this banquet, another kingdom, the Medo-Persians are, are marching on his kingdom. In other words, his, his conquerors are really at his doorstep. And so this banquet that he's going to throw that we're going to read about in a second is really his last hurrah as the Persians are on his doorstep. And in this banquet, as he is really eating, drinking and being married, because tomorrow, actually tonight we'll read he dies, a hand appears mysteriously and writes a message on the wall that needs interpretation and again none of the wise men of Babylon can interpret what's written and so he brings in this old sage Daniel who by this point is probably in his 80s and Daniel interprets the handwriting on the wall for this new young arrogant king and it goes badly for him so we'll read about that let me pray and ask the lord to help us father as we Open up your word. Help us to think deeply about what you're saying to us by your Holy Spirit. Humble us. There are believers in this room who need to be roused and stirred and shaken by your Holy Spirit. I count myself among them. Lord, there are people in this room who do not know you. They need to as Joseph prayed so well at the beginning of the service, they need their hearts melted and their eyes open to the beauty of the only message that matters, the message of the cross. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and honored as we gather. And we think about other churches. I think in particular about a, a church being planted by my friend John Chekwa in the Atlanta area, on the west side of Atlanta, cornerstone church there that is in a depressed and desperate area of Atlanta. We pray for your grace to John and his team as they minister the truth of the gospel there. Save people at Cornerstone Church this morning and encourage the saints. And do the same here, we pray, for the glory of your name and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's get into it. Daniel chapter 5, verse starting in verse 1. We'll stop along the way, and let me give you my outline up front. We're, I think sometimes when there's a A challenging chapter in the Old Testament. I am helped by asking myself three questions, and those three questions are gonna really serve as our outline as we get to the end of this text and then work back through it. We're gonna ask ourselves three questions. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? And then what do we learn about the gospel? So those are the three questions we're gonna get to at the end. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? And what do we learn about the gospel, God's unfolding plan of redemption? Because remember, the whole Bible is ultimately about what God has done in Christ to reconcile a people for himself, the good news of the gospel. Verse 1, King Belshazzar, now this is not Belshazzar which was Daniel's Hebrew name, right? So kind of confusing, just a one or two letter difference there, which is kind of a, of, a, of a evidence of that this story is not made up. I mean, if you're going to make up a story, make the two, the antagonist and the protagonist's name really different so you don't mix them up. And so, anyway, I was sort of encouraged by that little strange grammatical twist in the scriptures. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought. So remember, the Babylonians, decades before, had conquered God's people, sacked Jerusalem in the temple, stole all of their stuff, kidnapped a bunch of the brightest young people, and brought them to Babylon, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods, lowercase g, false obviously, the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So let's pause there and orient ourselves to what's going on here. There's this new young king named Belshazzar, and it says in the text that he is that Nebuchadnezzar who we read about at the end of chapter 4 remember what happened to him he's now dead there's a new king and it says that Nebuchadnezzar is his father well it's likely that Nebuchadnezzar was probably his grandfather if they were related at all and he very likely was his grandson. But through a seri- series of twists and political maneuverings, Nebuchadnezzar died. Somebody else came into power. And now, actually, Belshazzar's father was probably the actual king. But he wasn't worshiping the right gods that was sort of good for politics at that time. So they sort of sent him on a little vacation And now Belshazzar, this grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, is probably like the vice president kind of, but really the de facto king because he was actually worshiping sort of the right false god. So I know that's kind of complicated, but the point is is that Belshazzar is this new young king who is likely the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 5. Immediately, and before we begin reading, let's just take in the, the, the debauchery and the arrogance of that party that they're throwing, right? That They are taking the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar stole from God's people from the temple. And it seems like Nebuchadnezzar kind of had them put away maybe in a storehouse. At least, you know, he was a wicked, evil king, but he kind of had some respect for the religious artifacts of God's people. But now this young brazen king is breaking out all of these vessels from the temple And he is really just sort of spitting in the face of the God of these captor people, Israel. The gall and the arrogance of Belshazzar striking in the first few verses. And then it starts to go downhill. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then, verse 6, the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. So he wasn't just scared, he was scurred. And you know what's kind of interesting? I just was wondering kind of what his limbs gave way. The, the kind of literal Hebrew there, you could say it is his loins were loosened. Now, not to get too descriptive here, but I think that that may mean that Belshazzar had a, a little accident, right? <laughs> Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, one little kind of thing here, just a little archaeological encouragement for us about the validity and the veracity of Scripture. That little phrase there, the third ruler of the kingdom, was, uh, is one of those words that in like uh, his criticism of the Bible was sort of picked out by scholars in the late 1800s and early 1900s as not making any sense, but because they thought, well, if, first of all, we've never heard of this guy Belshazzar, so that's kind of... Like there was no archaeological evidence in Babylonian culture about a king named Belshazzar. And then what does this mean, the third ruler of the kingdom? There was no evidence that such a position sort of existed. But then in the late 1800s and early 1900s, archaeological evidence was discovered of the Babylonian empire that spoke about this man named Belshazzar, which for centuries we were just wondering who is this mystery king and then spoke about his dad who was the true king but he was kind of crazy and not politically savvy so he sort of banished him so Belshazzar was like the second ruler but kind of the de facto king and so what he's saying here is that whoever can interpret this handwriting on the wall I'm going to kind of make the third guy in in position which sort of like absolutely undercut centuries of criticism against the bible Archaeological evidence once again proving the validity and veracity of the Scriptures. So then, around Easter time, when the Discovery Channel has some goofy show just for ratings about some thing that sort of casts doubt on the truthfulness of Scripture, relax, right? There's been no archaeological evidence. The Scriptures are true just over and over and over again. God's Word proves true. Verse 8. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Surprising. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, probably Belshazzar's mother, who was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, the queen of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. Notice that the queen uses his Hebrew name, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So basically, it's like mom showed up to the frat party. And... There's a certain amount of dignity when she shows up, and you can just almost sense she's just disgusted. All your little knucklehead frat brothers can't interpret it, but there is a man in the kingdom named Daniel who you've forgotten about but was a pretty big deal when your grandpa was on the throne. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. Again, remember, we tend to think of Daniel being like a young man about in his 20s, you know, in the lion's den, which we're going to read about next week. But he's actually in his, probably his, at least his 80s at this point. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. That's a little cut right there. You're one of those exiles of Judah. Not the man that was really exalted really to this position of prominence because of his wisdom in my grandfather's reign. You're one of the exiles of Judah. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 17, I love this scene. Listen to this old man just speaking truth, not adorned with any faint praise, just the facts. Then Daniel, kind of like Joe Friday on Dragnet. Remember him? I, I lost everybody under the age of 40 in here. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. (laughs) Look it up, kids. You will be amazed at how good TV used to be. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. In other words, I ain't got time for you, you young, arrogant king. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And what Daniel's going to do is he's going to give him more than just the interpretation. He's going to give him a little history lesson. He's going to take this young punk to school. He's going to tell him a little something. Oh, that we would have a church full of young men who listen to older men and older men who tell young men like it is. That's what we need. We need older men telling younger men like It is. And so if you're an older man, and when I say older man, I think kind of over the age of maybe mid-40s. So I'm an older man right now. I'm putting myself in this group. Young men may act like they have it all together. But if there's one thing I know about young men is that they don't. And young men need, they kind of need an old man who's a little grumpy and got a little dirt underneath his fingernails. And he's, you know, he's just sort of ticked off to Tell them like it is. Amen. Amen. I think that's a better point than you're letting on. Ah. I feel like Mr. Wilson and Dennis the Menace. Get off my lawn. <laughs> now, Titus, 2. Titus 2 gives us a picture of church culture, doesn't it? It says that older men should instruct the younger men. And older women should instruct the younger women. And if you're a younger person, don't... Like, don't be so uh, imprisoned by your culture's captivity to coolness and relevance, right? Older folks may not be able to say it. They may not be able to put together a slick website. They may not be as hip and cool, and they may not hang out at Starbucks, but they have decades of wisdom. And you may need to filter through some grumpiness or their own little personal, you know, bandwagons, whatever, soapboxes. But do not cut yourself off from the wisdom of decades of people who are faithfully serving God. So maybe right now you know an older man or an older woman in this church, and you need to reach out to them and say, take me to lunch. And listen here, young man, young woman, you pay for the lunch. All right, okay, enough of that. (laughs) O king, verse 18, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he's speaking of Nebuchadnezzar now, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled Will. That's about the sixth time that we've heard that sentence in Daniel up to this point. God is in control. Verse 22 And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You grew up in this kingdom when all of this was happening to your grandfather, and you knew it all, but you have not humbled your heart. Verse 23, But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods, lowercase g, false gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose whose are all your ways you have not honored. History lesson over. Let me tell you now what the handwriting says. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, verse 24, and this writing was inscribed. Imagine the intensity of the scene. The king is throwing this party. He knows that the Persians are marching at the gates of his city. This hand mysteriously appears. It scares him so much that he probably soils himself. His mother comes in, busts his chops. The party, the music is stopped. It's intense. Daniel shows up, slaps him around a little bit verbally, and now tells him this. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsons. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed by the Persians that were, the Mede Persians that were at his doorstep. Verse 31, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. What a scene. Okay, three questions. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? And what do we learn about the gospel? First, what do we learn about God? Well, I feel a bit like the circus clown who's got just like one act. He climbs into the cannon and they shoot the guy out of the cannon in the, in the circus. You know, as we've been working through Daniel, I feel like the kind of the underlying point of much of the book of Daniel is, is that. God is sovereign over all nations and peoples, you know? And it's kind of like you're like, yeah, and then I crawl back in the cannon and I get shot at again. And that's the point again today. What do we learn about God? He is sovereign over all people and nations. But we need to understand what we mean by what we say when we say sovereignty, God's sovereignty. Here's a definition, just a kind of a, a grassroots, blue-collar, rubber-meets-the-road definition of God's sovereignty. It means that he can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, to whoever he wants, for whatever purpose he wants. That's how God is sovereign. And he's not just sovereign in a capricious, detached sort of way. He is sovereign and he is good. God is sovereign over the nation. So just remember, let's reorient ourselves to what has led up to this. God has formed Israel out of nothing. He made this nation and this people out of just one man. And he Put them into a promised land and said, this is your land. Live as an image bearer of God so that through you, through the way you live together as a people, I might display my glory and goodness to the onlooking nations so that through you I would bless all the nations of the earth. Of course, God's people, the story of much of the Old Testament is that they rebel against him and God patiently over generations warns them and says that if you continue to rebel against me, I am going to bring another foreign land, another foreign uh, uh, people, and they will capture you. They will take you captive. That happens with Babylon. But then, even as he is forecasting the doom to his people for their rebellion, he gives them a word of hope. And here's the word of hope. He says that the people, the Babylonians, who I'm going to send to conquer you and oppress you, to teach you a lesson, while they're doing that, after they've done that for a period of time, I'm going to raise up another kingdom called the Persians, and I'm going to send them to conquer the Babylonians so that they then will be in charge of you, and they're going to be gracious to you and actually allow you to go back to the promised land and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happens here, starts to unfold at the end of Daniel chapter 5. Babylon sent by God to discipline his people Their time is up. God is sending the Medo-Persians, Darius and eventually Cyrus, to come and be gracious, more gracious to God's people. And then he's going to raise up a man named Nehemiah and Ezra to lead God's people back to the promised land. And all of this is happening according to the sovereign hand of God. A hundred or so years before it even happened, he said, "This is going to happen," and it happens. So let's just take that in, and let's first of all let's just first of all be encouraged that God is in utter control. But let's not just sort of let it sort of rest up there in the clouds at thirty thousand feet. Let's let's actually kind of let's let's push back against that a little bit and say, okay, well, if God's in control, and if He can play this divine, hidden, providential chess game where he's moving the Babylonians to do his bidding, and then he's moving the Persians to do his bidding, and he's raising up specific people to do his bidding, can't he just sort of bypass all of that and just make it okay for me? I mean, isn't that the question, right? God, if you're really that powerful, why does it have to be so long and hard and difficult right? Am I the only person that asked that question? Yes. So why? So the application is, what are we to learn from this? Is it just merely that God is in control? Yes. But more than that, he's not only in control of the nations, but he has good and mysterious purposes Even in the way he works out his sovereignty. I remember when I first moved to the south from California where we have our own strange little idiomatic expressions. One of the first things I learned was from my wife who was my girlfriend at the time. I got lost and eventually we got to where we were going and she said, Oh, you went around your elbow to get to your nose. And I think that was her southern sort of way of saying you took an indirect route to get there. In other words, you you seemed like you were lost, right? Well, sometimes it seems like God is taking an indirect route to do what we know he could do in an instant. Why? Because God has purposes in that. He has purposes to discipline and prove and produce in his children more Christ like this. Know that if God seems slow and long-suffering in your life, it is for your good. Spurgeon said it this way. Just off the top of my head, I don't have it up on the screen, but he said, I have learned to kiss the waves that dash me against the rock of ages, meaning Christ. In other words, the tribulation that pushes me to depend more on Jesus, I've learned to kiss it. Another thing he said, he said that the black Horse, Jesus often rides on the black horse of affliction to the doorstep of our hearts to wean us from this world and woo us. To himself. So, right now, think about what is the most difficult thing, situation, person, circumstance that you are facing that is causing you the most anxiety. It may be something outside of you, it may be something inside of you. If you are a child of God, if you are trusting in yourself, know that God, who may seem distant and slack and slow and inattentive, is in that. He is in that, and he gives you the patience and the centuries of his dealings with his people to remind you that when he seems like he's not acting, he is acting, and he has good purposes for you in it. God is sovereign over all peoples and nations. Secondly, God is both merciful and just. I mean, let's just ask the question. Let's wrestle with the Bible here a little bit. It seems clearly that God deals very differently with Nebuchadnezzar than he does with Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar got lots of warnings. He got a couple dreams and he got, you know, he got turned into a, like a, ox and grew long hair and God humbled him on several occasions. And it seems like at the end of Daniel 4, God, after suffering, being long suffering and patient with Nebuchadnezzar for decades, brings him to true repentance. But with Belshazzar, the first dealings that we read about Belshazzar, this frat party that he throws, God causes a hand to write something on the wall and takes his life right then. What is that meant to show us? It's meant to show us, friends, that God is God and he will deal with his creation however he pleases. God is both merciful and long-suffering and he is just. And I've noticed something about myself when I'm dealing with my own kind of rebellion and sin. I want God to be merciful towards me. I want him to treat me more like Nebuchadnezzar. And I want him to treat all of the people that are giving me trouble like he treated Belshazzar. Right? Am I the only absolute self-absorbed hypocrite in the room? Or are there others? At least a couple of others, right? And what this... These two chapters right next to one another is telling God's people through the ages that you cannot bound up God, bind up God in a box as to how he is supposed to work in every situation. God is merciful and just. God does, Psalm 115, whatever he pleases. And that should humble us. He deconstructs our faulty notions of justice and he says, I am the Lord in the heavens. I do whatever I please. So that should cause us to be humbled, and it should cause us to seek him. That means that if we find ourselves like Belshazzar, we need to not bank that grace will come tomorrow. In fact, it's not just that Belshazzar had one opportunity on this one fretful night, right? Daniel, when he's preaching to him, he says, you have not humbled your heart, even though you saw all of this for decades in your grandfather. You knew all of this. So if you're, you're just maybe a young person in here just thinking I'm going to live it up for a while and then eventually I'll, I'll kind of settle down and serve God. Friends, repentance and faith are not yours to generate. They're gifts that God sovereignly gives and sovereignly withholds for His purposes. In Hebrews chapter 3, he warns, the writer of Hebrews warns the people of God to not harden their hearts like the generation in the desert did because he says that maybe when you get to the end of your rebellion, you will find that you cannot turn to God. He's merciful and just, and we need not presume on His mercy. But respond to God today. Well, what do we learn about ourselves? Well, as I look at Belshazzar and as we look at this chapter, again, let's be careful not to write ourselves into the hero, right? Many times when people read the Bible, they think of themselves as David or Moses or Abraham or Daniel in this case. But those are meant to be really shadows of redemptive history, really pointing us to Christ. We should write ourselves into the antagonist, into the the enemy of the story. And that's really where our hearts are most of the time. We are much more like Belshazzar than we are anybody else in this story. And I learn about myself that we are prone, I am prone to deny reality. Belshazzar could not come to grips, it seemed, with the fact that his kingdom was slipping from his hands. So what's going on with this banquet? There's lots of speculation about what's happening here this night that Belshazzar loses his life, knowing that the Persians are on his doorstep advancing. There's recorded history that there were other battles just like 50 miles out that were, you know, the Persians were advancing and winning these battles, and certainly Belshazzar knew that his enemy was on his doorstep. So what's going on with this party? Was he just absolutely oblivious to it? Certainly not. The thought is, is that maybe he was throwing this party to sort of make it like a, like a morale booster for all of his leaders, you know, like to, to show a sign of power. And in fact, to show a sign of our power, even in our insecurity, we're going to take some of the vessels of this other people that we conquered a long time ago, and we're going to sort of use the spoils of war to flex our muscle a little bit. Maybe it was like a, a political move, maneuver based out of insecurity. Or maybe Belshazzar was so carnal, so here and now minded, that he was like, you know what, I know I'm going to die, I'm just going to have one big last blowout. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I think that is the mindset of much of the world. In fact, it is a hashtag on social media, YOLO. You only Live once, (laughs) Y-O-L-O. What what is, is this true in some sense, but you live forever. And we live as if there is no eternity so often. Listen to Jesus address this mindset in Luke chapter 12, where he addresses a rich fool. In Luke chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, Jesus speaking now, and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, this is going to sound like Belshazzar, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We act often as if tomorrow and eternity doesn't matter. And we are chastened by what happens to Belshazzar. Another thing that we learn about ourselves is that we are prone to idolatry. What I mean by idolatry in this situation, clearly we see Belshazzar and all of his banquet hall there literally seeming to give homage and worship to these little bronze gold and silver and and gold statues but really it was it was belshazzar ignoring the one creator god and worshiping the created thing and we see this foolish bent that we see on display in this banquet of Belshazzar, even in our own culture and in our own hearts. We, we grow up in a culture that worships our own strength and our own stuff. It's the air we breathe. We are vulnerable to it. We worship the creature rather than the creator. And friends, we see this played out no more clearly than even in this hot topic debate in our culture of this bathroom argument where people can declare themselves whatever gender they feel like they are and they can go into any bathroom they want to because even if you were born biologically a male and you just feel like you're actually a female, that you have the right to self-determine that. Friends, that is not merely twisted, mangled up self-perception and desires. That is at its core an affront against God who alone can determine who we are. And friends, that's the culture. Now, maybe we as people who believe the Bible and trust in Jesus, which I think is probably most of us in this room, we may look at that and we may say, Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. How how could any but friends, realize that we grow up in that culture and we are influenced by it. And so we, too, when we come to God, we are prone to trust in our own strength, in our own stuff, in our own man-made things and objects of affection that make us feel good about ourselves. We, too, like Belshazzar, are prone to worship creatures and created things rather than the Creator. So if you see that in your life right now, Lord, show me by your Holy Spirit what that is and... Give me your grace, even as we sang, to turn from those false things. And then thirdly, what do we learn about the gospel? As we say often here, the whole Bible points to Jesus. And we see it here so clearly at the end of this chapter. Remember what what Daniel says there in verse 27 to, to Belshazzar. He says about this word tekel, You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Friends, that should point God's people across the centuries to the truth of the cross. That is the witness of Scripture. So what do we learn about the gospel? I'm going to give you both points up there, and then we're going to work through a passage in Romans 3. We have all been weighed and found wanting. That's all of us. It's not just Belshazzar. We have all been weighed and found one thing. But the good news is is that Jesus was weighed and found more than sufficient. Let me show it to you in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says. As he's building his argument against humanity, all humanity. In Romans chapter 1, his argument is is that whether you're a Gentile or any type of person from any type of culture, wherever you are, you are guilty. God has revealed himself by nature and by his creation so that we are all without excuse. And then in Romans chapter 2, he makes the argument that God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews, were given this special revelation and they rejected God and so they too are guilty. So all of humanity is guilty. And that's what he concludes in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. He says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. In other words, we are all like Belshazzar. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And he's making his point that all of humanity is under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be ac- held accountable to God. For by works of the law or human deeds, no being human being will be, be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He's making the point there that all humanity is found wanting. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the whole Old Testament is pointing to this righteousness, this goodness of God, apart from man's ability to make himself right with God. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's our first point there, is that we have all been weighed and found wanting. There's nobody, nobody from any culture, from any church background that can stand before God and say, you know what, if you put me in the scales of divine justice, I'm going to come out, you know, at least ahead head of most of these jokers here, Right? I know that's the way a lot of you army guys kind of navigate through life. You walk into a room, and you look at all the knuckleheads in there, and you think, well, you know, I'm at least going to end up on the OER or the NCO, you know, whatever evaluation report, a little bit better than that joker, right? We just kind of navigate through life like that, don't we? I know I did. That's exactly the way I navigated through the army. Walk into a room. If that clown can do it, I can do it, right? and it's the default mode to compare ourselves to other others and here's what paul says about this he says all of us are like belshazzar the divine scales of justice have been weighed and we have been found wanting now the good news verse 24 but and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus verse 25 Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So look again at that word propitiation. It says that God put, okay, so let's set up the scene. We are like Belshazzar, weighed by the scales of divine justice and found wanting. Our sin, the Persians, God's justice and judgment is at our doorstep, and God would be right to take our lives tonight, just like he did Belshazzar. We have nothing to commend ourselves to God, but God put his son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who wasn't created, but his been God from eternity past. Colossians 1 says that He is the image of the invisible God. He is fully God, fully man. When the fullness of time came forth, in Galatians 4 says that God the Father sent the eternal, holy God the Son to become a man, to live. In every way like us to face temptation, to endure humanity in real flesh. And where we, like Belshazzar and every other human being, have failed and rebelled against God, Jesus, the God-man, fully obeyed God. And he is a perfect human and the eternally holy son of God. And what Paul is saying here in Romans 3 is that God the Father then puts Him forward as a propitiation. What's this word propitiation mean? It's one of the most important words in the universe. It means that God, that Jesus on the cross bears, propitiates, bears, endures God's wrath for us. And he extinguishes it. He removes it. He satisfies it. He dries up God's wrath. Third Spurgeon quote of the day. He drinks damnation dry. He takes it. He endures it for us. But he doesn't just do that. That's only half of the concept of propitiation. Jesus bears the punishment that should have been ours because we failed in the scales of divine justice. And he turns that punishment into favor and grace. And now gives us his righteousness Puts his spirit in us so that we can obey God. That's, that's, I mean, that is such good news, and it is so foolish to our natural mindset that I have found myself when I am explaining that to somebody, sometimes I just start giggling. Like, I, th- I know, I know, this is crazy. It's crazy. It's scandalous. It makes no sense. In fact, the Bible itself calls this news foolish to the mind of a man. It's so good. Now you're saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that I deserve death. Okay, I got this point. I'm a little bit more. You've convinced me. I was a little, my teeth were grinding a little bit earlier, but I know I'm like Belshazzar. I'm a punk. But now you're saying that not only do I not have any ability to make myself right with God, but God, through his son, God, the son on the cross, bears the wrath that should have been mine, turns it into favor, and gives me the very thing that he... Re- you mean it's like all God, it's all grace? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then you may say, okay, okay, I get, I get that, but how do I then, like, like, apprehend that? How do I take that into myself? I think this gets even better. This word grace means that all of this comes to you as a gift. So, so don't hear this message and say, I need to straighten up and stop being like this and trying to be more like this and I need to grind it and be a good little boy or girl. Because the testimony of your whole life and the testimony of the human race is you can't. And this is where it gets even more scandalous is that yes, you were weighed in the balances and found one thing, you're dead in your sin. You can't do anything. All you can do is throw frat party banquets and dishonor God all of your life in any way or another. And here's what God does. He gives you the very thing he requires of you. That's why it's called grace. He gives it to you and he, those whom in eternity past that he has set his affection on, nothing can stop him from bringing them back to life that's how good and scandalous the gospel is. It's not try harder and God will meet you halfway. It is you are dead and can do nothing. So God in his sovereign grace and good pleasure, who is bound by nothing, especially not human will, God gives his people the very thing that he requires of them. Oh man, that's good. Fifth. Spurgeon quote. No, no. Listen to this. Orient yourself. That's actually pretty good. I should have let you go on that a little bit more. (laughs) Fourth for Spurgeon quote off the top of my head. Spurgeon says, when I come into the pulpit, my hope does not lie in the freeness of a man's will. My hope lies in the freeness of grace that God would snatch one and another and say to a dead heart, come alive, you are mine. And I paraphrase you there, Uncle Chuck, but you understand what I'm saying. The point is, is that God gives what he requires, friends. It's grace. Be encouraged. Listen to the old hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So back to the point I was making before I got diverted by another Spurgeon quote. How do I apprehend this, Brad?" Do you hear the words that I'm saying? Is your heart beating? Is it making sense to you? Is the Holy Spirit convicting you and saying, yes, I am that person that is weighed in the scales of divine justice and found one thing"? I realize that. Friends, I think that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is putting you through his birth canal right now, bringing you to life so that you would be born again. And what do new babies do when God gives them lungs? They breathe. So right now, you don't need to figure out what you gotta do and how you gotta try better. You need to breathe. What does that look like? It means that you look away from your own sufficiency. You look away from yourself and you look to Jesus, the only one who can do it for you. The one who was weighed in the scales and was found more than sufficient. More than sufficient to atone for the deepest, darkest secret in your past. More than sufficient to heal the wound of the thing that happened to you that has wrecked your life more than sufficient, He is able to do it. Look to Him and say, Jesus, come, come, come. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus and say, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I put my hope in the one who was weighed for me. And if you are a Christian and you know that message, let it do two things to you. Let it produce humility and joy and worship in you. And let it, I say it so often, I get made fun of. Let it produce steel in your spine. Because if God, is, if God has done all of this for you, <laughs> he who is for us, who shall be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? It is God who justifies. So how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We are God's people, and he has promised to bring us safely home so I can lean forward in the foxhole and endure because God has done what only he can do for his purposes, and he has guaranteed that he will bring us safely home. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate Daniel 5, May we realize that you are sovereign and in complete control of a world that seems so chaotic. May we be chastened and realize that we are so prone to wander, as the hymn says, that we too are like Belshazzar, prone to put our trust in our things and our counterfeit pleasures but thank you for the greater truth that although we were weighed in the scales of justice divine justice and found wanting Jesus was weighed and found more than sufficient and you are rich in mercy and you delight And glorifying yourself by calling people who are completely unable, dead in their sins, to be awakened from their death and delight in you. Lord, would you give the gift of faith and repentance generously across this room today to people that do not know you? And Lord, for those that have already received those gifts, and are your children. May you fortify us. May you humble us. May you break our hearts with compassionate boldness for people who need those gifts. Do this, I pray, Lord, for the glory of your name and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's all stand together and respond.